welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. I am your host, David Carter, who is currently snowed in in their abode. Yes, I am recording this the day that the winter storm has hit Bloomington. I'm currently looking outside of my office right now as the snow accumulates on the roof of my neighbor next door that has a rake on their roof, <laughs> but pretty excited to have a snow day. It's kind of nice to be able to like stay in and catch up on some things and do some reading and obviously record and edit this podcast, but... It feels like a nice way for things to slow back down just a little bit after ramping right back up when the New Year started. So sadly, that means tonight's screening of All That Heaven Allows is canceled at the IU Cinema, which won't do anyone any good listening to this right now since this episode will be out the Monday after this snowstorm. But that is a bummer and I was excited to introduce it, but I'll be watching it anyway with my Criterion Blu-ray. If you don't have a Criterion Blu-ray of this, you could subscribe to the Criterion channel and watch all that Heaven Allows there because they have their The Melodramas of Douglas Sirk series currently happening. And if you want something a little nastier than that, as I said in the last episode, I've just been catching up on the Jackass movies. I watched Jackass 2 just the other night. And while not as scatological and focused on bodily fluids, there's still a lot in there that was tough to watch. When I watched the first movie, I would say the only thing that beats out all of the like vomit and poop and all that stuff like that beats it out easily the hardest to watch segment in the first Jackass movie is the paper cut segment, like without a doubt, more so than anything else in which they put their lives in danger. I just cannot watch the paper cuts. And I'd say in Jackass 2, it might be Steve-O using himself as bait by (laughs) pushing a fishing hook through his cheek, I guess. (laughs) That was the one thing I was like. I can't watch him push this fishing hook through his cheek. It's also just crazy how babyface they look in the first movie and the second movie, just like, you know, hard living boys age quite a bit. And at the same time, it's just kind of nice watching like guys being dudes and having positive <laughs> male friendships, I guess. I don't know, but I'm very excited to rewatch Jackass 3D. Uh, maybe this evening. I might. It might be a double feature with All That Heaven Allows, or I might watch it a little later, but I'm definitely excited for Jackass Forever. So that's probably going to be my Snowden day, along with just doing some reading, catching up on some music that I've put off for a long time. But I hope whoever's listening to this, you had a good snow day as well, and no one was breathing down your neck for a deadline or anything like that. So with that, I think it's time to get to our schedule at the IU Cinema for the week of February 7th. Tuesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. We have the Paul and Vieira Shorts program, which I won't go into a lot of detail about because I'm going to be giving a very brief overview of who Paul and Vieira is and why they are important and why this series is happening in the first place. But I would like to point out, as I do when I go through the schedule every week, about the protocol for the IE Cinema and going to in-person screenings. Please note, mask are required for all attendees and cinema staff at indoor events. Due to our limited screening schedule and currently reduced seating capacity, we currently encourage patrons to buy tickets online in advance to avoid getting sold out. And there is no standby line or late seating. 
and then a note about this particular shorts program. Those registered for a conversation on Paul and Vieira virtual event on February 10th will have access to stream a virtual program of this same Paul and Vieira shorts program from February 4th to February the 11th. And as is obvious, this is part of the series Paul and Vieira, pioneer of African cinema, filmmaker, producer, and historian. And this is done in collaboration with the Black Film Center and Archive. The shorts program will consist of five different shorts, ranging from 16 to 27 minutes. I'll get more into that a little bit later in the episode. But that is a free but ticketed event. And once again, that is Tuesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. On Thursday, February 10th at 7 p.m., we have a virtual event, which is a conversation on Paul and Vera. Join us for a virtual conversation, interactive Q&A with the IU Black Film Center and Archive. And just some information on this, those registered for this virtual event will have access to stream the Paul and Vera Shorts program from, as I said, February 4th to February the 11th. And that same Shorts program is playing in person on February 8th. To participate in this virtual event, be sure to have downloaded the Zoom software to the device that you want to watch this event. Register for the February 10th Zoom webinar to receive a link through which you will join the event at the date and time noted. And if you have any more questions about this and need any more information about IE Cinema's virtual events, please visit our Virtual Cinema Frequently Asked Questions page on the IE Cinema website. In this virtual conversation moderated by IE Cinema Director Alicia Cosma, former Black Film Center and Archive Director Terry Francis, yay, yay, and IU Associate Professor in Francophone Studies Vincent Beauchard, will discuss the career of Paul and Vieira and the donation of his papers to the Black Film Center and Archive by his son, Stefan Vieira. And for those who, as I said up top, and for those who don't know, Dr. Terry Francis is the former director of the Black Film Center Archive who has moved on to other pastures, and so it's always exciting to hear her talk about anything film-related, and it's going to be exciting to hear Alicia talk, and Associate Professor Vincent Beauchard talk about their work. Should be a lively conversation, and I definitely think you should check it out, but that is once again a virtual event that is free, and there is no ticket required, so please just follow those steps that I listed and outlined earlier in the description of this program. On Friday, February the 11th at 7 p.m., For $4 for students and $7 for non-students, we have the solo effort by director Joel Cohen, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand star in Joel Cohen's bold and fierce adaptation of Macbeth, a tale of murder, madness, ambition, and wrathful cunning. It is a nice, succinct description of what Macbeth is. This is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. I have not seen this yet. This has been playing the festival circuit for the last few months. And I know, I think it might be on Apple TV Plus or something like that. But this stark black and white photography in this movie, I just knew that this was something I would just needed to see in a theater before I watched it at home. It's also much like The Matrix Resurrections, a solo effort by a director who's more known for making films as a duo. Ethan Cohen is not involved with this production of The Tragedy of Macbeth, so it's going to be interesting seeing how Joel Cohen operates in the space and by themselves. And and then outside of all that, just being a fan of Macbeth, like, I'm so excited to see Denzel Washington take on this role. It's uh, It's been a long time since Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, and I just really love Hollywood actors and movie stars with a lot of charisma taking on Shakespeare and putting their own spin on that incredible dialogue. And Frances McDormand, she's just the best. Can't wait to watch this. So 
That is playing actually twice. So that's playing Friday, February 11th at 7 p.m. And then it is playing once again on Sunday, February 13th at 1 p.m. The prices for that remains the same. So please go to the website, purchase your tickets in advance for one or both of those screenings if you just happen to fall in love with the movie so much. And finally, on Friday, February the 11th at 10 p.m., we have our next Not Quite Midnight screening, our final Not Quite Midnight screening, if I'm not mistaken. This is New York Ninja, which I've talked about on the Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny episode. Uh, I think it might either be on the September or November episode of 2021. This is technically a 2021 film directed by John Liu and Curtis Spieler. Transformed into a vigilante after shattering personal tragedy, average guy turned ninja, John, played by John Liu, the director of this film and also of Secret Rivals and Invincible Armor, is on a mission to clean up the mean streets of 1984 New York City. Hellbent on justice, John soon finds himself the target of every criminal in the city, including the mysterious plutonium killer. Can John survive to be the hero NYC desperately needs? This was originally directed by Liu and his only American production. New York Ninja was filmed entirely on 35 millimeter in 1984, but the project was abandoned during the production, resulting in all original material scripts and treatments going missing. 35 years later, Vinegar Syndrome acquired the original unedited camera negative and painstakingly constructed and completed the film, enlisting the voice talents of genre favorites like Don the Dragon Wilson of Bloodfist, Linnea Quigley of Return of the Living Dead, Michael Berryman of The Hills Have Eyes, Ginger Lynn Allen of The Devil's Rejects, and Cynthia Rothrock of China O'Brien. This is a one-of-a-kind film experience, finally available in all of its over-the-top glory for the first time after nearly four decades in film obscurity. And as I had talked about that on my physical media reviews, you know, like found films like The Miami Connection, there is like, you're seeking out the irony in the film. But what I think this film does such a great job of, because they're having to reconstruct the dialogue and reconstruct the story, you know, reframing the story in certain ways. I think it really does successfully walk that line of being one of those hooting and hollering midnight movies where you're ironically enjoying it, but then also being pretty faithful for something that was made in 1984 for this type of budget with this type of cast and this type of subject matter. I don't think it's it's too winky at all. And I think it's kind of a little miracle of a reconstructed film. So if you are interested in that, that is once again our final Not Quite Midnights. It is New York Ninja, and that is Friday, February the 11th at 10 p.m., and that will cost you $4. And with that, we have two things to get to in this episode. We will be discussing and giving a brief overview of the career of Paul and Vera, and then we will have Sundance Roundup with Alicia and Brittany, where I'm going to follow up with them about what they saw at Sundance, their experience, having it be all virtual. I just want to know what Virtual Park City is like. So before we get to that, I'll just do the credits that I always forget to do on these episodes. I'd like to thank Brittany and Alicia for letting me do this podcast. I'd like to thank Steve Alfred and Rational Discourse for the use of our theme song, Chimney, off of the album Live at the Mothlight. If you are interested in following me. I mean, if you want to follow the IU Cinema, it's pretty much at IU Cinema or at Indiana University Cinema, wherever on social media. If you're interested in following me, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram at Robert Dolphy. And if you are interested in following me on Twitter, that is at Samurai Flicks. And 
if while you're here, go ahead and give Cicada Cinema a follow on social media. We have some exciting upcoming screenings. Uh, as of this recording, we've already done our radio on screening, and hopefully that was a good time. But we do have upcoming screenings in town. We're going to be showing Sister Street Fighter at Orbit Room as a part of our Cicada Underground series that we've been doing with them in collaboration with the American Genre Film Archive and the Orbit Room. So if you like martial arts movies, if you if you go to New York Ninja and you just can't get enough, come see <laughs> Sister Street Fighter with much better martial arts in it, if I'm going to be completely honest, but no less entertaining at all. So come and check that out. And without further ado, I will turn it over to David in the future to discuss the influence in films of Paul and Vieira. And then after that, we will turn it over to Brittany, Alicia, and David to the, do a little Sundance follow-up and roundup. Thanks a lot, everybody. The IU Cinema is playing the short films and having a conversation on the works and legacy of director Paul and Vera. And instead of reinventing the wheel as I was doing my research for this, I decided I would just pull resources directly from the Black Film Center archive, a post they did in 2019, along with a few other pieces of supplemental material, because there isn't a lot written on Paul and Vera. I think this is partially the reason why these films are being screened and discussed at the IU Cinema, uh, which I very much appreciate bringing more cinema that is lesser known to the forefront. So just being upfront about this, I have decided to pull language directly from the Black Film Center archive post titled Paul and Vieira, Pioneer of African Cinemas, Filmmaker, Producer, Historian. And this was a piece published on August 26, 2019, and I will include a link to it in the podcast description. So if you decide that you want to read a little bit more about Vieira and their work, you can go visit that and hopefully it will take you to some other resources to get a better idea of who this person is. But for me, this is someone, this work that I'm not familiar with, but I definitely wanted to take some time to highlight them to encourage this listening audience to go ahead and attend the virtual conversation and watch these short films either virtually or in person this week at the IU Cinema. I think it'll be an enlightening and educational experience. So without further ado, who is Paul and Vieira? Paul and Vieira was a pioneer of African cinemas during the decolonization era in the 1960s. Born in Benin, he is best known as a Senegalese producer, filmmaker, and historian, as well as Usman Simbin's production manager. And for those who don't know, Usman Simbin is largely considered to be the father of African film, directing such films as Black Girl and Mondavi. Paul Vieira's multidisciplinary career as a filmmaker, producer, and scholar is central to West African film history. In 1955, Vieira directed the first substantial film by a French-speaking sub-Saharan African titled Afrique Sarcienne. This 21-minute, 16-millimeter film with Marpessa Dawn, star of Black Orpheus from 1959, a personal favorite of mine, was co-directed by aspiring filmmakers Jacques Melocan in Mamadou Sar and shot by Robert Carston. This quartet became known as the African Cinema Group. The film's ironic title highlights the incongruous locations of Africa in the Seine River in Paris, where Vieira was the first African admitted to study at the Institut des Hauts Etudes Cinematographiques, the IDHEC, now known as La Fims. 
As I stated earlier, Vieira was a mentor to Senegalese filmmaker Osman Sambin, as well as Abba Bakar Sam Makaram, and he was the founding member of film institutions that have an enduring impact today, particularly the Pan-African Federation of Filmmakers, the FEPACI, and the Pan-African Film Festival. Vera organized personnel for Simbin's Badrum Saret, from 1963, the first of many transformative films by Simbin. Vieira produced La Mandat in 1968, Tall in 1970, Zala in 1974, and Kedo in 1977. Vieira wrote Simbin into film history with Simbin Osman Senest, Premier Period, 1962 to 1971, and La Cinema au Senegal. As far as Vieira's significance to film history, Vieira returned to Dakar, Senegal from France in the late 1950s, staying through the 1960s, where he took on a supervisory role at the Actualité Senegalaisis, the newsreel agency. Leopold Sadar Senghor, the first president of independent Senegal, had appointed Vieira as the first director of the Senegalese Office for Radio Broadcasting and Television and the Science and Information Technology Research Center to organize the media office in charge of the news production, educational movie screenings, and state funding of film production and education. Vieira's position was crucial because under colonialism, many European powers perceived cinema as a threat, leading them to impose strict limits on the production and distribution of African films, such as the Laval Decree of 1934, which effectively forced the creation of Afrique sur Seine in Paris. The British and French administrations had both developed systems of screening films in the colonized nations, often for propaganda purposes, and the lieutenant governor had to authorize filming in that area. In reality, this meant that Africans were barred from filming in Africa. In the process of decolonization, Vieira worked to reclaim and nurture African cinema through his governmental role, his personal filmmaking, and his doctoral work, as well as through his support of other African filmmakers and African film in general. As Senegalese television developed, he took a leadership role, which he retained until his departure in 1975 from his position in the government. He continued to make films, including his only feature-length film, Under House Arrest, which he filmed while working on his dissertation on African cinema. He promoted African film through his published criticism, and he often collaborated with notable cultural magazine and publisher, Prezis Africain. In 1975, Vieira published one of the first histories of African cinema, La Cinema Africain des Originales, a 1973. He received his doctorate from the University de Paris in 1982. And as far as what is Vieira's legacy today, due to the hard work of Vieira's son Stefan, his crucial and fascinating films are available to view today and his photographs and unpublished manuscripts have been held in storage. Stefan Vieira has overseen the digitization of his father's work and provided access to them through international screenings. LAM, Iavres du Cor, and Une Nation Esne at their American premieres at the 2018 edition of the African Film Festival in New York. LAM was an official selection at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival in the Classics category, and it was shown alongside Afrique Circienne at the 2019 edition of the Pan-African Film and Television Festival of Ouagadougou. The recent publication of In Translation, Paulin Salmanu Vieira by Melissa Galinas in the 2019 issue of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies indicates a resurgence of interest 
and this pioneering figure among film and media scholars. In addition to all this wonderful information about Paul and Vieira, it is worth pointing out that the Indiana University Black Film Center archive has acquired the papers of Paul and Vieira. The collection carefully soared in Stefan Vieira's family home from the past several decades totals more than 50 cubic feet and consists of manuscripts, screenplays, correspondence, organizational documents, promotional materials, photographs, films, audio recordings, memorabilia, and equipment detailing Vieira's life and work. If you want more information on the Black Film Center Archive's uh, Vieira collection or just in general, you can talk to Amber Burton, whose email address is a-B-E-R-T-I-N at indiana.edu. And if you want more information on Paul and Vieira, please tune into the conversation about his work featuring a conversation moderated by Dr. Alicia Cosma, moderating a conversation between Dr. Terry Francis, former director of the Black Film Center and Archive from 2017 to 2021, responsible for securing Stefan Vieira's donation of Paul and Vieira's papers to Indiana University. She will be talking to Vincent Bouchard, who is Associate Professor of Francophone Studies at Indiana University Bloomington. His publications include the book Pour un cinéma léger et synchrone et Montreal from Septentrion University Press, Sinomad in the Fight Against the HIV-AIDS Pandemic in Burkina Faso from 2017, and European Design of Propaganda when Confronted with the Colonial African Realities from 2020. He currently works on the various forms of cinemagraphic practices developed in West Africa since the 1960s, including the conditions experienced by early filmmakers, popular reception of films, and the practices of educational screenings and their impact on African cinema. A book on the reception of colonial screenings in West Africa is in the editing process with Ottawa University Press. So please refer to earlier in the episode for specific information about when that conversation will be happening and when you can find and watch Paul and Vieira's shorts. Uh, we hope to see you there. And with that, I will turn it over to Brittany, David, and Alicia to talk about the virtual Sundance experience at Virtual Park City uh, in the year 2022. So thank you. Joining me once again in more ways than one, we have Alicia Cosma and Brittany Friesner back from their trip to Virtual Park City here to tell us about their discoveries of Virtual Sundance 2021. This is the take two of this recording. So we were just kind of talking about what the uh, notches in their belt were <laughs> for, <laughs> for Sundance this year. Brittany, what was your number of films viewed? 38 features and 18 shorts. And Alicia? I did not go that wild. I watched <laughs> 26, I think, 26 features. That but, is... But we did both buy more tickets than we initially... Like, we got into the festival and we're like, okay, I, but I want to see this one and I didn't buy tickets for it. Uh, yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, this is just kind of us following up on what we talked about the industry stuff a couple of weeks ago. And so, in addition to what you saw and enjoyed, you know, we had talked about, like, industry trends and stuff like that. But really, I am curious, like, what were the standout films for you at this year's Sundance Film Festival? 
Well, I'll give you, I'll start and I'll give you some of the films that I loved and that were standouts and that uh, several of them, I hope that we are able to show, but they also are like representative of a micro trend that was happening at Sundance. And that's the archival or found footage documentary. There was a ton of these and I watched a lot of them. (laughs) They're a personal favorite, but also they were really good. So the first big sale of the festival was the first of these archival docs to premiere. It's called Fire of Love. And it follows two married French volcanologists as they study active deadly volcanoes. If anyone's familiar with the Werner Herzog film Into the Inferno, it's the same couple. But this film is entirely made up of their personal photographs and footage that they shot over their lives and career. And it's narrated by Miranda July in a type of really gorgeously written narration that oscillates between being really emotional, really intense, and also really banal, which is somehow also what their footage oscillates in between as well. And it gives you a good sense of like what the everyday lives of these two people were and how even something that seems as exotic as like you know, chasing volcanoes also just is like a lot of waiting around and a lot of patience and a lot of standing and looking at dust. And like, it really speaks to the kind of obsession and the passion that they had for the work that they did. And that was the first like, quote unquote, big sale of the festival. There weren't a ton when nothing was huge. Nothing blew it out of the water in terms of there's no 25, no 25 million dollar. No. But Fire of Love, Exiles, which I also loved, which is a loosely like a Christine Chu documentary. She's a like legendary documentary filmmaker, but it is a mix of archival footage that she shot in the 80s of Tiananmen Square and some of the leaders of the Tiananmen Square protests who came to the U.S. And then she put that footage away and 30 years later, she comes back to it and she reinvigorates and reinvestigates it with new footage. Riotsville, USA, same deal, another archival footage documentary that is completely made up of public television or U.S. military footage about a experimental slash like template city that the U.S. Army built on, actually there's two of them, on two separate military bases in the late 1960s to practice riot control against domestic populations in urban centers in the United States. And so it's footage of what that looked like, what it meant, how people were reacting to it, what it what happened when that footage made it out into the real world and like everyday people were seeing it. Oh, and second chance. Same deal. Second chance is Maran, Ramon Barani, excuse me. This is his first documentary feature. You may know him from Chop Shop or Man Push Cart or um, the million other wonderful movies that he's made. But this is a archival footage documentary about the man who invented bulletproof vests and how he shot himself 192 times to prove that they work. That was like his selling point. And this man also made his own like low budget exploitation, bulletproof vest focused movies. He had like a little cottage industry. So it's also interspersed with a lot of his own like narrative filmmaking. There there was a couple others, but archival footage documentaries were really big. They were really big kind of niche at the festival. And I think all of them either were pre-sold or sold or have distributors and are, and are going to be out in the world. And they were some of my favorite films to watch too. Certainly Exiles and Fire of Love. Loved those for sure. 
Yeah, we tried not to watch too many of the same films. Uh, so the only one of those I got to see was Fire of Love. But uh, yeah, agreed. Amazing. And I also would be surprised if Wes Anderson did not base the red hats in uh, Steve's Zoo Life Aquatic on, on uh, oh, the two for of sure. I heard, For sure. Yeah. I heard some yeah. like murmuring about that yeah. on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Like yeah. that exact, that exact mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I tried to focus on world cinema and films directed by women. And my, I guess, five favorites, I made a little list here because cheat sheet, uh, Leonora Will Never Die from the Philippines is this great, oh my God, it's so funny. So, so much of the theme through the films I was watching, I noticed, were themes about either alternate realities or magical realism, uh, especially with dealing with the concept of grief, but also identity. So not that that's not always present in film festivals, but it sort of seemed like maybe uh, the pandemic inspiration. People have a lot more time to, to ponder their feelings. But Leonor Will Never Die was about this woman screenwriter who wrote action films. This is, it's not a documentary. This is the character. And then she's fallen on hard times and she figures out the only way she can, she can get out of that is to win this screenwriting contest and finish the script she's been working on forever. And at one point she bumps her head and is suddenly a part of the movie she's writing. That was amazing. I can't wait to show it. Brian and Charles was about this. It's a, a film from Wales. It reminded me of very early Taika Waititi, specifically, not even early, but What We Do in the Shadows, kind of seeming mockumentary, but a narrative film. Like inventor guy who's just lonely and decides to invent a robot out of a washing machine and it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> very cute. I think it was originally a short um, that was expanded into a feature. Probably my other, if I had to go with top three, The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future from Chile, which I think may have also, it's either a continuation of a story from a short story or um, an expansion of that. But magical realism, a family in Chile dealing with intergenerational trauma and the return of someone from the dead who doesn't speak the entire film, but everyone basically has conversations with her. But yeah, a couple of films, uh, Girl Picture from Finland, fantastic coming of age film, which I think trusted its audience much more than U.S. coming of age films do. And then Dos Estaciones, uh, which I'm probably mispronouncing, about a matriarchal tequila factory and how they're dealing with corporatism, you know, coming into these generational industries and just taking everything over and how that affects the town, but also her personally and all of her staff. Yeah. Those are those are my favorites. So you guys chose very different paths to go down for. Oh yeah, Alicia put her list together first, and I was like, "Well, how much overlap do you want?" And she's like, "Let's try for ten percent." I was like, "That's like three movies." <laughs> <laughs> we need we need coverage. We needed coverage. You know? But it did it did help me really think about what movies do I absolutely want to see, even if they're someone else is already seeing them. Um, and it helped me dig deeper, which I was talking about last time being important. So I think we ended up seeing six films the same. So not a lot of overlap. Were the six films the like hot titles? So like this is a weird Sundance for me to spectate as someone who just scrolled through Twitter because it was virtual. So people talk about like the like Sundance being in the same room with everybody getting out of the screening. Everyone's right. You talked about it on the last episode, like yeah, people yeah. raving about a certain film and whether or not it translates to public consciousness, there are those like movies that just like hit. So did you guys see any of the ones that kind of hit? Yeah, I know we both intentionally signed up for Nothing Compares, the Sinead O'Connor documentary. There were two films about the Jane Collective in Chicago 
providing abortion care for women. One was a documentary, one was a narrative. We both saw the documentary. I think we both saw Duel. The Karen Gillan yeah. movie? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And then, oh no, that one's Riley Steers. Oh, is that the is well, that the, act, the actress actor? Is Karen Sorry, yeah, the actor. Yeah, yeah, I just remember seeing like yeah. still images of her in that movie. Yes, yes. I did not put Fresh on my list, but once the buzz started hitting, I was like, I'm just going to pay for myself to go see this. So I know we both saw that. We did. And it was fun. It's worth it. Everyone can watch it on Hulu next month. So you are not missing yeah, and it. I, and I looked, I was like, okay, this feels like something that's coming out no matter yeah. what. Can I wait till March 4th? I was like, I could, but it's 20 bucks and I want to see a it was after a heavy day, too. And I was like, I just want to see something kind of fun. I mean, not that it's not <laughs> intense in parts on its own, but yeah. There were some bigger... I had a chance to see some of the the titles that were bigger. Certainly the, the Audience Award, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, mm-hmm. which is a very enjoyable movie. It's cute. And that's by Cooper Wraith. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. He, mm-hmm. I think he did like a South by hit a couple years ago. And I'll just bleep this out called like house. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very sweet movie. No one will be mad that they watched it. No one will be super mad if they miss it. It's coda of this year. Yeah. Of. But somehow even with less buzz around it, I think, yeah. I think what got more yeah. buzz out of that film is it was one of the two films that Dakota Johnson was in. At the mm-hmm. festival, and she was lovely, and the best part of both of those two films. And so there was more conversation about how she was like a Sundance superstar necessarily than like how phenomenal this film was. You know, Brittany mentioned uh, a kind of like COVID feeling permutating. There's one film that I watched that I really enjoyed. And it's so specific. I feel like people should watch it as soon as they possibly can right now because I'm like, years it's not going to feel the same it's called something in the dirt it's by the filmmaking team that made like endless and synchronic and it's like a supernatural conspiracy movie but fed through the perspective of really bored bros who have absorbed a lot of reddit and (laughs) have just enmesh themselves in the idea of general panic and conspiracy in a pandemic. And so it is very unclear if any of the things happening in this film are actually happening or if they've wound themselves so far down a pandemic rabbit hole that nothing can ever just be a coincidence or nothing can just be. It's a film of a really specific time and place. The two filmmakers are the stars of the film. They wrote and directed the film. Their friend who shot the film and edited the film shows up as their friend who's in the movie shooting and editing the film. It's like super closed. It's super tight. It's really like kind of manic and all over the place in terms of like the energy that they're putting out there. And it's funny. It's very funny. But it's also really specific to right now. And it's one of those films that I'm not sure how well, what kind of life it's going to have in like 20 years. I described it to someone as like primer, but for dummies. Like (laughs) if the two guys in primer were just Just not smart. Yeah, like that's this movie. And it's fun in that regard. There's also kind of like really specific to the moment. So... That was a fun one I saw. I don't know if it has if that one has legs, as they say, but it's probably worth watching, you know, in the next six months or a year if someone can find it. 
I also really loved Resurrections. Yes, this is the one I heard about, yeah. which, you know, film Twitter favorite David Ehrlich tweeted out about it, saying that it, it's kind of like possession in a way. He compared it to possession, which immediately rung everyone's bells in their brain. Yeah, it's Cronenberg-y. It's got a little possession vibe, but it also has the best version of like a USA up all night thriller thrown in the mix too. And then it's Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth. One of the most intense like 10 minute monologue scenes that Rebecca Hall delivers in this film that will leave you un you cannot remain unchanged after hearing it. Maybe I was telling Brittany or, or actually maybe I was telling Seth the cinema's a technical coordinator. I was like, I want to show this movie and I don't know how to describe or think about who would want to watch this movie. I was, yeah, you and I had that conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, I don't know. Like, I want to show it, but I don't know who for. I don't know who I'm showing it to, but I really <laughs> want to show it. Like, I'm <laughs> just not sure who it's for. I mean, it sounds like it's for me because. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> so you can have an audience of one if you want to play I, I, it. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> worth it like there were so many good things about it being virtual like you know we binged on movies until you know as we said earlier or in our first attempt like my eyes were bleeding and yeah. at some point i was like i just like can't like watch anything else ever again until barlin all <laughs> yeah that was a movie that i think it flamed up a little bit on twitter and there was like a lot of conversation around it rightly so because it's just like truly truly nuts in ways that you cannot expect and will never expect until you watch it. It's one of those films that I think would have had a longer conversation had you been in person. It's one of those movies where after you watch it, you will be in the lobby of wherever you are, just kind of like putting your heads in your hand and going like, ooh, WTF. What did we just see? I have to talk about it right now. So I think that film would have benefited even more than some others from an in-person screening experience, for sure. And and that is one thing I missed, even though they had Q&As after a lot of these films or for a lot of these films. And I have watched them. I definitely watched them last year at Sundance and I think last year's SIF, I believe I did online, too. This year, I was just like movies, as many movies as I can get in. I'm not going to watch the Q&As, um, but also because everything was such open viewing windows, it just it, it wasn't as easy to remember to go back and watch the Q&As. So there are a lot that I would have liked to have heard more from the filmmakers and the talent and everything. But yeah, that was my own personal trend. Is on. And I did tune into a couple of the Beyond Film Talks, though. There is a documentary crew who followed, God, I can't remember the town, but wherever Oscar Michaud moved and tried to get his film production, they filmed there for 17 years. Wow. Because there is a film festival there honoring Oscar in a completely white, very racist town. So I listened to the filmmakers Q&A. That's finally going to premiere soon. It's going to be like a five film series. And then there was a, a panel on, well, where is film going? If we could world build, where would we all like for it to go? And it was tapping into a lot of the folks, um, a lot of the initiatives, like the Hollywood Commission that have been founded to try to get more representation in front of the screen, behind the screen, in production, protections for crews and and talent and and things like that. So that was, I wish I could remember the organization name. So yeah, it was a weird fest. It was, even some of the films were, well, wait, before I say my other big trend that Brittany and I were talking about, I'll, I do want to shout out a Bolivian film called Utama, which is a gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous movie. It actually won the World um, Dramatic Competition. It's phenomenal. 
it is a movie about an elderly indigenous couple just trying to figure out if they can actually survive in their homeland because it's been so radically changed by climate change. And it's a gorgeous movie. It's beautifully shot. And the performances are just out of this world. And it is something that we will do our absolute best to bring to the theater because it really is phenomenal. And it is, you know, last time we convened and spoke, we talked about there are so few things at Sundance that actually feel like true international art house special filmmaking and this is that film so it's one of those little gems that we should be able to pull out early in the festival Brittany and i were talking about our biggest trend was like movies that just didn't know how to finish movies that were great until the last 20 minutes it was like the first three days of movies i watched everything was great and then everything fell apart in the last 20 minutes and i think there was a weird breakdown of films at this fest because it was either the late night stuff the experimental and the shorts the documentary or a lot of what feel like pretty big budget verging on mainstream films like cha-cha real smooth and the janes and 862 and even emily the criminal the very cool um aubrey plaza like crime noir what hung for Jesus, save your soul. Like these are movies that don't are not really going to have an art house life first. They'll have an art house life second. If they have a second life, they are going into mainstream theaters. And so there was, I think much more this year than before, like a bifurcation on like, these are our big titles. And then here's all the stuff that we made our bones on. Yeah. Those are all the things that would have played at Eccles probably. Yeah. Restoring the Future. I want to put that out there because restoringthefuture.org has a great um, report on all of this. Yeah, so I want to make sure our audience About the future of film. Yeah, their their goal is uh, building a more abundant media arts system through restorative values practice. I think they're going to post, Sundance is going to post a lot of their talks on their YouTube channel in the uh, weeks ahead so that everyone will be able to have access to it. I'll say this though, shout out to the Sundance Apple TV app. Works like a dream. Okay, yeah, I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask how the infrastructure held up since it was completely virtual. Yeah, I only had one uh, goofy thing where I started watching a film, went for a walk, or did something, tried to come back, and it wasn't working. I was like, I am still in my five-hour window. Where is the movie? Can I finish watching the movie, please? And I just turned my computer off and back on again, and it worked. So <laughs> I I think it helps because you know Palm Springs right before Sundance canceled, and we're like, sorry, folks, no no film festival. It very much helps that Sundance was already planning for hybrid. Now, what was annoying for I'm sure a lot of people and maybe even caused some people to be shut out is they completely redid the schedule once it went all virtual. So Alicia and I'd spent hours figuring out our schedules and then had to go back and redo that. Now, I hesitate to give my secret away, but I noticed that members to the Sundance Institute got to buy tickets a day in advance. So I became a member and I bought all of our tickets and then the system allowed me to transfer Alicia's ticket to her account. So like top to bottom, the infrastructure was great. The only thing that really You should have gone on YouTube. There's a whole genre of YouTube videos about people trying to game the like Disney fast pass system. Uh, because it's like so broken and so you yes. could have you could have gone on youtube and just done like a all right this is what you got to do to speed run the sundance uh ticketing system first you got to become a member all yes. i know is that i came out of a meeting to a text from Brittany that said i got all your tickets they're in your account you just have to accept them and i was like well this is 
love it. <laughs> yes, I love I love gaming the system. So uh, props to Sundance for allowing that to happen because I think you know these are the kind of barriers we think about when we think about access to to things. Is not everybody necessarily can change their schedule at the last minute. If Alicia hadn't had me to do that for her, she might have gotten sold out of some movies by the time things went on sale to the public or might've had meetings. I think actually Alicia and I had an all day programming retreat the day tickets actually went on sale at noon. So we would have either had to reschedule that meeting or, you know, pause for half an hour to be sure and get everything. But yeah, ultimately loved it. Great system. Props to them. I know they got a lot of crap, even the way they live tweeted their awards people were complaining about. So somebody will always complain. I have to be the bad guy. I mean, so I just listen to you guys talk for another, like, this could just be another episode, but I have to be the bad guy and wrap up. <laughs> well, we are hopefully both going to another festival. Berlin All? Maybe. Yes. Next okay. week. I know Alicia's not sure she likes movies again yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, at least, at least one of us is going to be there. I might have to, I might have to deputize some, uh, some cinema staff to go in my stead. Well... Hey. So, you know, watch out for those emails, friends. <laughs> we definitely will. Well, if you have any parting final thoughts for the audience about festivals, I can imagine this could be a reoccurring thing if you guys are going to keep going to festivals, if you want to keep chatting for a half hour about and just kind of... Yeah, I would love yeah. to. I'll just say that what we're playing, uh, by the time this episode airs, but what we're playing on Friday, February 4th, or hoping to, if the weather cooperates, are two films I saw at Sundance last year. Mm -hmm. So that's the media landscape for the most part of what we're probably looking at is when we can bring these films to our audiences. It'll probably be a year from now. Hopefully sooner for some of them. But I mean, you know, we maybe I went when I listened to the episode when we talked about this initially, I realized I sounded a little uh, maybe down on Sundance, maybe a little a little too cynical on Sundance. And I will say there is still a lot of really great material, a lot of really great vision and creativity out there that Sundance can bring to us. I really hope that the Institute figures out a way to allow for some more of the accessibility um, that the virtual festival has brought both to audiences as well as, as filmmakers, right? It's a lot easier for someone who's made seven to 15 minute, you know, wild short about whatever to have someone see it if they can just sit and watch it on their computer versus if they're vying for, you know, screen space against the next big thing. Um, so there's, there is a lot to be said about having virtual options, both for the audiences, but also for these new and emerging creatives whose voices and films we want to see and we want to hear and we want to be a part of. So not like Sundance is listening to me all the time or ever, but you know, I would They're say universe, <laughs> I would say universe. Yes. Yeah, Sundance like the NSA. If you can tell Sundance to to find ways to incorporate lots of the good stuff that comes out of this, like nothing has to be an all or nothing. Yeah, this was my 11th Sundance, and it's the first time I've watched short films at Sundance. There you go. Because I could. Yeah. yeah. Seems like a lot of net positive on this one, honestly. Yeah, for sure. That's great. I mean, I love improvement. I love improvement amongst institutions that uh, it doesn't behoove them to improve sometimes. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, they don't necessarily need to to keep being successful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's great. By some standards. And maybe, maybe and, and I'll leave it with this. I did see one movie where my only notes, taking notes in the movie, was this movie is so bad, which I won't name at this point, but if it, it starts to make the rounds, because it seemed like it might, maybe I'll come. You'll, it'll come clean? I'll come clean, yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone look forward to the 
like six months from now, uh, a podcast where I have Alicia on, just like, all right, spill the beans. What movie was it? Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> literally my only note. It's in all caps. I wrote it in all caps too. If that helps. Well, thank you both for being on this episode. Thank you, David. And you, David. Uh, I'll just plug, uh, follow the IU Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, come to screenings, all that stuff. It's great. We would love to have you there. And this has been a place for film. We'll see you at the movies. Good night. <laughs>